You always clap with hesitation because you haven't heard me yet, so. <laughs> I might want some of those claps back, depending on how this goes. Thank you for welcoming me this morning. I know this is like a stranger parachuting into a family and saying, I'm here. So it is really, it is truly a joy for me to be here. It was just two weeks ago uh, today that our local church, Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield, California, said goodbye to Pastor Joe and to Deb. But our church is so filled with joy knowing that they're here at uh, Berean Baptist Church. And you will be blessed for many years to come by a well-trained, godly, humble preacher of God's Word. And so I do officially bring you greetings from the elders and deacons of Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. And I can't tell you how many have told me in the past couple of weeks that they are praying for you. They sense a kinship with you. We are all saved by the same cross. You may never meet any of those members, but you will uh, in heaven and will rejoice together at how the Lord uh, used all of us together. As, as uh, Joe mentioned, I've known them for about a dozen years now, and we're, we're glad to finally unload them on somebody, so <laughs> I had to get one in. I'm sorry, Joe. Just, just, just one. Just one. In, in all seriousness, um, o- over my years of ministry, I, I have had the privilege of working with men and helping them get into churches and so forth, and then uh, with them afterwards uh, as well. And so I get a lot of young men that come to me and say, I want to be a preacher. And I, I say no nine out of ten times. I don't want anything to do with you. You don't have the character. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the gifting, whatever. Um, it was with absolute pleasure and joy that we ordained Joe to the gospel ministry. And we didn't do that easily. We put them through tests. We put them through trials. We put them through experiences. And it takes a process of years in our church. And so it is absolutely my pleasure this morning to commend Joe to you and let you know you will be confident in him. And as you get to know him and Deb, what you see up front as warm, loving, and down to earth, that's the way they really are. And you'll enjoy them uh, greatly. Joe is a natural leader of men. Wherever he goes, people follow him. He's a diligent student of the Word of God, and he's passionate for the sanctification of God's people and for the salvation of the lost. And so this morning, my task and my privilege is to Try to do my part to assist you and Joe in beginning this adventure of gospel ministry together, because that's what it is. It is an adventure. We're all headed toward heaven by the grace of God, and we take as many with us as we can, right? So I want to have you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 3, verse 7, and I'm going to call this message very unoriginally, the church of the open door. Or we could call this a church worth imitating. The church of the open door or a church worth imitating. The Lord Jesus himself is writing to the seven major churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. And I'd like to look at the church of the open door, the church at Philadelphia. Revelation 3 verse 7 and I'll read through verse 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power 
And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Seize fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Very simply, what I'd like to do this morning is give you four reasons that you should imitate the church at Philadelphia. Four reasons to imitate Philadelphia. The first reason is they maintained a high view of Christ. They maintained a very high view of Christ. In verse 7, Jesus here gives a a three-part description of himself. And this is what the church already believed. They already believed this about Christ. This isn't some sort of correction to a, a low Christology. How do we know they already believe this? Well, in verse 8, Jesus affirms that you have not denied my name. You haven't denied who I am, my reputation, the character of who the Lord Jesus is. That's been maintained. They have kept a high view of Christ, but they're maintaining it. And So what do we see in this three-part description of Christ? We see, first of all, in verse 7, he is the Holy One. He's the Holy One. Their view of Christ starts where it ought to, with the preeminent fact of his deity, Because only God is holy, 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 and for Jesus to be called the Holy One puts him on par with God. And if he is God, then he's worthy of all glory, of all honor, all obedience, all submission. Right here in these same letters, the, the very next church to be addressed, the church at Laodicea, total contrast, totally different than Philadelphia. The church at Laodicea had so denigrated the name of Christ, so put him down, They'd so lost touch with the Jesus of the Bible, with the Savior who is fully God, that in Revelation 3.20 to the church at Laodicea, Jesus pictures himself standing outside the door, knocking, saying, can I come into your church? But not in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, Jesus was holy, holy, holy. In Matthew 16.18, Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Well, the world has changed that question to, Who do you want me to be? That's not the right question. And even in the church, the danger of a low, emotion-based, therapeutic Jesus is that his primary function now changes to give me feelings, to give me help, to give me a, a charge or goosebumps on occasion. But first and foremost, Jesus is the Holy One. Have to start there. The text also says, Jesus says, He is the true one. He's the true one. This means that they trust in him. They trust his character as the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true one in that all their faith, all their confidence, all their conviction, all their reliance is solely and squarely on him alone. They've learned to trust Christ. Now, what does this mean? It means they're not fearful. They're not a fearful church. They aren't cowardly. They aren't forever looking for a safety net other than the head of the church. He is the Holy One, He is the True One, and He is the Sovereign One. He is the Sovereign One. Now, where do we get that? He said that He is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
What is that about? This is a direct reference to an event during the time of the prophet Isaiah. It's recorded in Isaiah 22. And God refers to this key of David. And what is the key of David? It is heavenly authority over God's people. And see if this sounds familiar. Isaiah 22, 22, He shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. It's exactly what Jesus is referring to, that Jesus Christ himself, the descendant of David, the rightful king of Israel, the only king of all the kings, the only lord of all the lords, he alone possesses the key of David. He has total authority. He has total sovereignty. And how is this expressed? He expresses his sovereignty by saying, when I open a door, no one will shut it. And when I shut a door, no one will open it. The church of Philadelphia knew who the head of the church was. And they knew that he always does everything his way. I don't know if you've ever heard or maybe accidentally used the phrase, we'll let God do something. Nobody's ever let God do anything. God does what he is going to do, always. So he's the holy one, he's the true one, he is the sovereign one. That alone is good enough reason to imitate Philadelphia, to maintain a high, glorious Christology. There's a second reason to imitate the church. They established a record of faithfulness to Christ. They established a record of faithfulness to Christ. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. The sovereign head of the church had evaluated the church at Philadelphia, and what is his evaluation of this local church body? He gives it in verse 8. He says, you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What does it mean that you have a little power? Well, this isn't a mega church. This was a little church with little influence. They didn't have a hefty bank account. They didn't have lots of influential people in the community in their church. In Bakersfield, we have large, large churches, a few of them there, and I know some of the people there, and they don't know Jesus at all, but they're there because that's where you go. They're there because they're the, the, the president of the bank. They're there because they're the, the head of this or head of that, and that's where you go when you're prestigious. Church of Philadelphia didn't have any of those people. They had the farmers and the plumbers. They had the regular people. The Church of Philadelphia could never boast about their own accomplishments. They had no inherent strength of their own. They were small and unimpressive, and yet they were used of the Lord. And Jesus says, and yet you have kept my word and not, have not denied my name. We know that they were hearers of the word of God. They listened and they learned and they strived to know the word. Now, how do we know this? Because according to James chapter 1, you can't be a doer of the word unless you're first what? A hearer. So they were disciples in the truest sense of the word disciple in the New Testament. They were learners. I can guarantee you that the commitment to preaching in the church of Philadelphia was robust because they loved the truth and they obeyed the truth. And so as a church, Philadelphia was striving to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, striving to be faithful. They dealt with sin in their midst. They preached the word. They faithfully endeavored to proclaim the gospel. And what happened in Philadelphia? Did they become a big megachurch? Nope. Did they have lots of influence? Nope. Lots of glitz and hype? Nope. A long record of consistently proclaiming Christ and the gospel? Yes, and that's why they're only one of two out of the seven churches in Revelation that are commended. And because of this faithfulness, because of their consistency, because they didn't shift with the changing tides of the world or unsound doctrine, 
because of their faithfulness. There's a third reason to imitate Philadelphia. They received dangerous orders from Christ. They received dangerous orders from Christ. First, they maintained a high view of Christ. Second, they established a record of faithfulness to Christ. And third, they received dangerous orders from Christ. And because of their track record of faithfulness to Christ, he calls the church, as it were, front and center. He calls them to attention, to come up to the front. And he gives them dangerous orders. And he says, behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, what is this open door? What is the opportunity? Well, we get some ideas from other parts of the New Testament using that same metaphor, that same word picture. At the end of Paul's first missionary journey from his sending church in Antioch of Syria, Acts 14 return, records the return of the uh, missionary team. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So what was the open door? It was the opportunity to effectively preach the gospel and see the fruit of salvation that people were getting saved. Paul reported to the church at Corinth that he was staying in Ephesus for a while, and he gave his reason in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. What was the open door? It was the opportunity to effectively preach the gospel and see the fruit of salvation. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, same thing. Colossians 4, 3, the same thing. But specific to the church at Philadelphia, what was their open door? What was their opportunity? They were to take on what verse 9 calls the synagogue of Satan. Unbelieving Jews who were the most hostile to Christ. And how were they to take them on? Very simply, by doing what they'd already been doing, proclaiming Christ and the gospel. Now you might say, why would God take a little no-name church like Philadelphia and have them be the ones to take on this establishment. Well, actually, it makes total sense. Philadelphia had little power. They weren't wealthy. They weren't prominent. They weren't powerful. But Jesus said in Luke 16.10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in what? In much. And so the little church that could became the little church that was given orders, dangerous orders. And so, of course, Jesus is going to put Philadelphia at the front lines. They've been faithful. Who else are you going to put there? They've been proclaiming the gospel to unbelieving Jews. And these are Jews so hostile to the church that people like them had persecuted Paul. People like them had crucified Christ himself. But look at the promise Jesus gives them. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, why is that door unable to be shut? It's very simple. The book of Romans, chapter 1, tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. But listen carefully. We want to be very clear here. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, I have thrown you through an open door. He says, I have set you before an open door. What's the implication? They must be obedient to walk through it. And how are they going to walk through it? By keeping the word of Christ, by not denying his name, by proclaiming that Jesus is the holy one, the true one, the sovereign one. Can I tell you this? Any local church that will have a high Christology and will exalt Christ as, at as high a theological level as you can muster, that you will learn the word of God, what it says about Jesus, that you will learn all of who he is, 
that's a church that the Lord Jesus Christ will take notice of and say, if you will exalt me, then I will use you. And this was risky for them. This wasn't theoretical risk. This was actual risk. The the church at Smyrna was just 50 miles away, and they were having their members thrown in jail and put to death. The early church father and martyr Polycarp was one of 11 Christians put to death in Smyrna as a form of entertainment at a festival put on by the governor of Smyrna. You know where they got the other 10 Christians to murder? From Philadelphia. I want you to notice something here, and this is so important in our day and age. Jesus does not command the church at Philadelphia to protect itself, to mitigate risk, to play it safe, to make sure to entertain the members at all costs, to make sure everyone feels happy with all the programs and the accessories of the church. No, this is Jesus, the supreme commander, the head of the church, saying to Philadelphia, get to the front lines. You have loved me. You have trusted me. And so I'm going to put you in danger. I'm going to put you in harm's way. I will put an open door before you. And when you walk through that door, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be hard. No one will close it, though. You be faithful and get after it. I spent 25 years in Texas, and what you told kids there was get to it. Get to it. I want you to notice something here. He didn't guarantee their safety. He didn't even guarantee that some of them might not die as a result of their efforts. What he did guarantee is that their work would be fruitful, that no one will shut this door I've opened for you. And I I can't make this as clear as I want, but the church at Philadelphia was not a church filled with professional pastors, so to speak. It wasn't a church filled with professional missionaries, so to speak. It was filled with regular people, families with children, work-a-day people, work-a-day laborers, people who have but little power. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth of Christ. You are the vehicle by which truth is transmitted to the world. That's your job. And and it is possible to try to create a safe and non-risky local church, but is that the mission of the church, to preserve itself? The spiritual protection of the church falls to the shepherds, but the preservation, the survival of the church, that falls to Christ himself. Christ is the great chess master, we might say, of the churches. He opens some, he closes others. He's the sovereign head. He does what he wills with his local churches. When Berean Baptist Church opened its doors for the very first time, that wasn't because a man or a group had some ideas. They just thought it was them. It was because God ordained it. He ordained it, that there would be a day that a church would stand on this beautiful street and proclaim Christ. Our prayer at Grace Bible Church, we we pray openly that our church would remain faithful until Christ returns because so many don't. So we pray for that. He is the sovereign head. He does what he wills with his local churches, and I think that's so key for us to remember that we serve Christ, not the other way around. So why would you imitate the church at Philadelphia They maintained a high view of Christ. They established a record of faithfulness to Christ. They received dangerous orders from Christ. The last reason is they enjoyed guarantees from Christ. They enjoyed guarantees from Christ. And I'm going to give you four of them from the text here. These are ironclad, take it to the bank, you can count on it, guarantees. The first guarantee we'll call exaltation. 
exaltation. Now, we have to differentiate between two important biblical words. Exaltation is to give glory, to give praise, to be upwardly lifted toward God, to give respect. But exaltation with a U is different. It's similar, but it has a much more specific idea of rejoicing and boasting because you won. Boasting over victory. The most common biblical use is a faithful follower of God exalting in the victory of God. Uh, Psalm 35, 9, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord exalting in his salvation or in his victory. And what is the guarantee of exaltation, of boasting and victory that Jesus Christ gives to the church of Philadelphia? Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The idea of bowing down at the feet of the church of Philadelphia is that of abject defeat, of acknowledging, I've been beaten, I've been overcome, I've been overpowered, I've been conquered, I've been vanquished. And what will some of the synagogue of Satan, the wicked Jews who have hated Christ in the gospel, what will they learn in their defeat that I have loved you? That Christ has loved the church of Philadelphia. Now, the obvious question is, well, what's the nature of the defeat? I've been a pastor for a lot of years. I've never had an unbeliever walk into the church and bow down before me and say, I acknowledge that you defeated me and then leave. That would be really weird. That's never happened. How does Philadelphia defeat some of the members of the synagogue of Satan? What would make them come and bow down at the feet of the church and say, Christ has loved you? There's only one option that really fits all the criteria. Some of the synagogue of Satan who have persecuted the church of Philadelphia, they will be vanquished by God. And how? When the Holy Spirit saves them. When they hear the gospel when they're crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them, they will bow down at the feet of the church and they will say, oh, how Christ has loved you and now he loves me too. And they will praise God for this church because of their faithfulness to proclaim Christ. That's how we vanquish souls, isn't it? Is with the gospel. New souls, listen carefully, New souls are guaranteed to the church that will maintain a high view of Christ, establish a record of faithfulness to Christ, and carry out dangerous orders from Christ. You will have victory. It is with a lot of nostalgia that I look on this congregation because this is the size that Grace Bible Church was when I came to it 10 years ago, and we've baptized more than 200 new believers I don't know how it happened. Our church was located in the worst possible place. It's like, let's pick the worst place nobody on planet Earth can find and let's put a church there. But when the head of the church gets behind it, then he will do so. First guarantee, exaltation. The church at Philadelphia gets a second guarantee, liberation. Verse 10, liberation. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This isn't a promise to the church at Philadelphia that they're not going to personally suffer because all of a sudden you see here in verse 10, the scope goes global. This is not just Philadelphia. This is the whole world. Now suddenly Jesus is speaking of the hour of trial coming to the whole earth. And this can reference really only one event, one that hasn't happened yet, and that is the Great Tribulation. 
And Jesus promises that all true believers in Christ, all who endure to the end as genuinely regenerate people, they won't be here when the tribulation happens. Now, why would this be important for the church at Philadelphia? Why would this be so encouraging to them? Christ is asking them to be faithful in their dangerous mission, even to their own temporal harm. They are the means by which many Jews in Philadelphia will come to faith in the Lord Jesus. But the comfort is this, no matter what you endure, no matter the cost, even if it costs you your life, you will be liberated. There will be a day. First guarantee, exaltation. Second guarantee, liberation. There's a third guarantee, compensation. Compensation. In verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is the only word of exhortation to the church. And he tells them, hold fast to what you have. This isn't speaking of holding fast to their salvation, the, the, the perseverance of the saints. This is speaking of holding fast to their heavenly reward not seizing their crown, the compensation given to the faithful, the obedient Christians who endure in their determination that they will make a gospel difference. Now, why is this important? This is important because Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia who has but little power that someday, Revelation 22.5 says, you will be reigning with me in great power. Hold fast, hang on. Someday the kingdom will be mine, and someday it will be yours. Exaltation, liberation, compensation, and there's a fourth guarantee. This is my favorite. Jubilation. Jubilation. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is an amazing picture of a grand celebration of a, of a jubilee. The one who conquers, who is that? That's the saint, that's the one who saved. This isn't the sense of conquering by, by keeping your salvation in your own power, but by proving that you were saved because you endured all the way to the end. And they will be pillars in the temple of God, now, this is interesting because Revelation 21-22 says that there is no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. What, what does this mean? That God is the, is the temple, you're the pillars. Well, it's a very clear picture that you don't go somewhere to be with the Lord. You don't go somewhere to worship the Lord. The Lord is the temple, you're the pillar. There's a forever connection. Dozens of times in the New Testament, you're said to be in Christ. That will be lived out in, in absolute literal form. And Jesus Christ will write on you, as it were, the name of God, the place you belong, New Jerusalem, and get this, and the new name of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus' new name? We don't know. We're not told. It's a name that will encapsulate in one name all that the Scriptures says about Christ, that He is Messiah and King and Lord and Son of God and the Holy One of Israel, a High Priest, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Counselor, our Brother, the Creator, the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, the End, the Bright Morning Star, the Righteous One, the King of Israel, the Lion of Judah, the King of the Jews, the Head of the Church, the Light of the World, Emmanuel, the Capstone, the Rock, the Firstborn from the Dead, the Chief Shepherd, the Prince, the Passover Lamb, the Horn of Salvation, the Son of 
man, the Lamb of God, all encapsulated in one magnificent name. How magnificent, how glorious is this name? This is the name that Paul said, the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. It's not when they say Jesus, that's the name we know. It's when they say the one we've never heard. One theologian says we don't know if it'll take a minute or a thousand years to say the new name of Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you maintain a high view of Christ, if you continue a record of faithfulness to Christ, if you're unhesitant to receive and carry out dangerous orders from Christ, and if you're guaranteed exaltation, liberation, compensation, jubilation, is there really a reason not to pray that God does something wonderful in your midst? There's no reason that the Lord entrusts you to go against the synagogue of Satan in our day? What's the synagogue of Satan in our day? Take your pick. There's no reason to hesitate. Can I say it this way? You are not called to play it safe as a church. We're not called to do that. You're called to live by faith and to expect that if you'll be obedient to the gospel, many from the synagogue of Satan will bow at your feet in gratitude that you gave them the life-breathing gospel and introduced them to Christ. In 1865, in a different Philadelphia, a Sunday school class was organized in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In 1868, the class formally recognized itself as the Central North Broad Street Presbyterian Church. And a godly man in 1930 by the name of Dr. Merrill T. McPherson, he came as the pastor. On June 10th, 1936, Dr. McPherson and some of his congregation showed up to the, to the midweek prayer meeting and the doors were locked. And they looked inside, and there were most of the church inside, and they had changed the locks on the door, and they put chains on it, and they wouldn't let them in. And they asked why. Well, Dr. McPherson stood for the authority of Scripture and the headship of Christ, and in the 1930s, liberalism in the churches was just like wildfire. And so these few believers in Dr. McPherson literally locked out of their church walked across the street to an empty lot and just, just held hands and just prayed, asking for God's help to know what to do. Their own church had gone AWOL from obedience to Christ and to the Word. They got rid of those who believed in the authority of Scripture and the headship of Christ. So four days later, on June 14, 1936, the locked-out people formed as an independent church, and they needed a new name. Well, that Sunday, Dr. McPherson preached from the same text I just did, Revelation 3, and they all agreed on the name that they would be the church of the open door. Never again would they lock the doors. And the immediate goal was the same. They were to preach the word, proclaim Christ, proclaim the gospel, and win the lost. Just four months after forming the new church, they began reaching out to their community. They opened a ministry for troubled youth called Light of the World Chapel. They completed their first brand new church building, dedicated Thanksgiving Day of 1940, in 1944, they made the emphasis of that year for the whole church to personally share the gospel. Their, their motto for that year was witness more in 44. In the 1950s, they began using their choir to do evangelistic concerts at Christmas and Easter. They even were featured on NBC for several years. From 1936 to today, for the past 87 years, the Church of the Open Door has had a total of only six pastors. 
An average of each pastor staying about 15 years, one only stayed for a few years because of health issues, and so the average is actually closer to 20 years. For 87 years, they have faithfully been the church of the open door. I happen to be friends with the current pastor, Dr. Glenn Jago. He's a godly man, and he has continued this tradition of being a church to just proclaim the gospel. And how have they done this? The same way the original church of the open door did. As one little question I avoided, we didn't address here in our text in the Church of Philadelphia, who is the angel of the Church of Philadelphia? Is this an actual angel, the kind with wings that we float around at Christmas in time and that, that sort of thing? No, this is a human leader, one representing each church, the leader among leaders, and let me prove this to you. In, in both Old and New Testaments, angel or messenger is used of more than just God's angels. It can, be, it can speak of a human messenger in multiple places. Even, even extra-biblical literature using angelos, the Greek word for angel, refers to human messengers. Another issue here, how exactly would John send this letter to angels, and how would it be delivered? A third issue here, these messengers in Revelation 2 and 3 are commended and rebuked. The, the rebukes involve sin in the church and the failure of the shepherds to teach and purify the church. This is a human, a holy angel can't be held responsible for human sin. And it's never said in Scripture that a holy angel is responsible for leadership in the church. So God has providentially sent an angel, so to speak, a messenger of the Word of God and of the Gospel. We would use a different word. We would use the word pastor. To the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, right. I'd like to finish our time together this morning by just giving you a list. Here's the list. How to squeeze the most out of your pastor. <laughs> How to squeeze the most out of your pastor. But these are very serious, and, and it's a really simple choice. You can do these and watch the Lord bless your church. You can decide not to and watch him not. Those are the two options. So it's up to you. The first way to squeeze the most out of your pastor, respect God's priority of study. Respect God's priority of study. Ezra 7.10 speaks of Ezra the scribe. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. What was the top priority? It is the study of the word of God. There's no substitute for time. Your pastor's top priority is to meet with the most important people in the church. You know who the most important people in the church are? Moses and Isaiah and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and Peter. Those are the people he needs to meet with the most. Your pastor is to encounter God in the trenches of his study until the word of God has etched itself on his mind and on his heart and then he comes and shares with you what he's, what he's learned. For me, I've been teaching and preaching for 38 years and I still require 30 hours a week to study. And I guard it, I, I, put, up, I put up barbed wire, I put up fences, I, I, leave, I leave notes saying I'm places that I'm not, whatever I have to do to guard my time. And our church graciously makes it a priority by making sure that others help me with everything else. I called a friend of mine who's a pastor and he said, I got to call you back, I'm mowing the lawn. I said, which lawn are you mowing? He said, well, the churches. I said, drop the lawnmower and get in your study. The church that commits to guarding their pastor's lengthy time in the Word will be blessed beyond measure. I promise you that. Here's a second way to squeeze the most out of your pastor. Share encouragement and appreciation. 
Share encouragement and appreciation. Share specifically how a sermon or a series has impacted you and grown in your faith, grown you in your faith. Share how a sermon increased your understanding of something. And, and I'll, I guarantee you this, Pastor Joe will be learning new things every week, and so you will as well. So share with him what you've learned. And when Pastor Joe has been here 5, 10, and 15 years, if anything, your appreciation ought to be heightened because you will have been on a journey of growth and delight in the Lord together for a very long time. Here's a third way to squeeze the most out of your pastor. Support his vision for the ministry. Support his vision for the ministry. God has made each shepherd with a unique set of gifts and leanings and interests. God did this on purpose. And in the coming months and years, as your pastor prayerfully looks at the big picture of how your church can become more effective, get on board and be a help. The Lord Jesus himself expects development and growth, and he looks for churches ready to receive dangerous orders. Who are the ones that receive dangerous orders? The ones who are willing to get on board and to go for it. Here's a fourth way to squeeze the most out of your pastor. Renew your commitment to be a learner. Renew your commitment to be a learner. If you've been sitting under the preaching of Pastor Eric all these years, you know you've learned well, but you can never, ever stop. In our church's membership class, our elders rotate teaching it, but I always come in for the last hour and I only talk about one thing. Be a learner. Be a disciple. Mathetes in the New Testament is a learner, a disciple. Expect to grow and even to have faulty beliefs corrected by the Word of God. I tell our new members, if you're coming to hear me say everything you already agree with, you're in the wrong place. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says, and you have to test your own heart and mind against it. God told Jeremiah to preach, and he told him what his preaching was going to do. Jeremiah 1.10, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Those are six things preaching does. The first four are destructive. What does a builder do? He guts the old building before putting in the new stuff. What does a farmer do? He plows and tears up the soil. He plucks up the weeds over and over again. And then and only then does he plant seeds in the broken up soil. And so I would encourage you, you want to get the most out of your pastor's preaching, show up on the Lord's Day expecting and asking God through the preaching of the word to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, so that the Spirit of God might build and plant Christ's likeness in you. Here's a fifth way to squeeze the most out of your pastor. Pray for your pastor and his family and let them know that you are. Pray for your pastor and his family and let them know. There are families in our church who pray for me and my family every day. And I'll get a text from them. Our family just prayed for you right now. And here's what we prayed in three little bullet points. By the way, I can tell the families that pray for me by the way their children treat me. As their children run up and they say, we've been praying for you. And they come and greet me. Why is this important? I, I know that you might think that Berean Baptist Church hasn't gotten Satan's attention. It just did today. It just did today because God sent a man to make you into Philadelphia. So please remember to pray for him because um, Joe and his family just put t-shirts on with big target symbols on them. Here's a sixth way to squeeze the most out of your pastor. Show your love for Christ with generosity. 
Show your love for Christ with generosity. Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And I would encourage you to remember this. I know you know this. But the minister of the gospel is not an employee of the church. He's supported by the church to fulfill his calling to shepherd him, but an employee mindset is harmful. I know that the IRS thinks we're employees, but we're really not. This is a calling, not a job. God said in 1 Timothy 5 to give double honor, double generosity to the preacher of God's word. And that goes beyond just supporting financially. That, that means giving time and the means to be refreshed periodically. This is as we like to say in seminary, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Jesus paused at times. If there was ever a time, and Joe won't preach on this anytime soon because he is a man of propriety, but I can say it because if you don't like it, I can just fly out of here in a few hours anyway. <laughs> if there was ever a time to increase your giving, this is it. And watch, see what the Lord does, because the ministry is the same as the rest of life. You get what you pay for. And so there, if there was ever a time, you know, our, our little church, when I first came, couldn't even afford to pay me a salary at all. And so I worked another job. I was bivocational for 18 months just to see what the Lord would do. And we fast forward to having just completed a $1.3 million fundraising campaign from the same little 45 people that we started with. And now what the Lord has done. And he will do that here. One more way to squeeze the most out of your pastor. Renew your prayers and commitment to bring guests to church. Renew your prayers and commitment to bring guests to the church. I, one of the things I love about the Baptist tradition is that you are all about bringing people to church. And, and I'm, I'm passionate about this. I've spent years studying evangelism, uh, evangelism methods, and evangelism methods come and go. They explode with popularity, and then they fade away, then they're replaced, and then there's the next big thing. The gospel never changes, but the trends seem to always change. And this is, oh, this is the next big thing. This is going to save the world. We have to go through this program, and, and that's great. 20 years later, nobody's even heard of that. Now we're going to go on to the next one. But in studying church history, there is one so-called evangelism program, historically, by far, without even a close second, by which the gospel has been spread. It's always the same. Ever since the church in Jerusalem, it is very simply believers gathering together to worship their Savior and bringing their friends and family with them to hear the gospel. That's how the church grows. And it's a beautiful team effort. You bring the fish in and Joe will throw the bait of the gospel out there. And you do this over and over again. I know that his commitment is to make the gospel clear and to, to highlight the doctrines of grace that, that you are saved by the grace of God through faith in God, in Christ. And the Holy Spirit will do his work. The church that is faithfully preaching the gospel, listen carefully, you should expect to see new converts. You should expect that. The baptistry next door, you should expect to be filling that on a regular basis. This is a fabulous team effort. Your pastor is a natural leader of men. I love him, and you will love him too. God has given them to you as a gift and given you to him as a gift. And so my prayer for you is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, that he would bless you, that he would keep you, he would make his face to shine upon you. And in the years to come, 
May you be found faithful in Christ's evaluation of Berean Baptist Church. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the word of God so clear. And I, I'm so encouraged by Philadelphia. I'm so encouraged by them, Lord, because they're just the regular church. They're just the regular people. No superstars, no, no hot shots. Just a church with a little power that refuses to deny the name of Christ and will spread the gospel even to their own harm. That's my prayer for Berean Baptist Church, Lord. You have placed them here to be a gateway to heaven. That there are people in this area, this neighborhood, this city, who are on the broad road to destruction, but through the preached word here in this body, might you transfer them to the narrow road of life. Might you transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We pray, Lord, that these coming months and years would be a grand adventure of marveling at your faithfulness. We look forward, Lord, to meeting the new saints that will come to be birthed by the gospel in this place. And we'll give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in Christ's name. Amen.